everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Truster. And I'm Kevin Mazza. And today we're going to talk about a new initiative in our lovely home state of New Jersey uh, as, as it pertains to addiction uh, treatment in the field. So on uh, June 25th, the state of New Jersey has approved a drug called, and I'm going to get this right this time, I swear, uh, buprenorphine. Is that right? Buprenorphine. Buprenorphine. God, we, buprenorphine. So we, we've been doing this off air for the past five minutes and none of us can say it right <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so buprenorphine, um, it's a may-carry drug that's been approved for ALS units. So let's talk a little bit about what this drug is, why it matters. So tell, so this drug specifically, it's a partial uh, opiate uh, agonist. So the whole goal of this treatment is going to be you have a patient who's overdosed on an opiate, whether it be morphine or heroin, uh, codeine, whatever you have. And typically the treatment up until a, a couple of days ago as we're recording this was that we would give Narcan and take the patient to the hospital. So... As a, as a group here, do we think that has been the most effective treatment for patients who are suffering from opiate addiction or opiate overdose? No. <laughs> Just a simple end. no. Overall, no. I'd say End of no. episode. I, I think it's, yeah, and close. Thank, thanks for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> oh, God. No, because it's very dependent on, first of all, they have to be open to recovery. They have to be open to getting help. And... One of the big problems is that we have to manage that immediate post, you know, naloxone wake up where maybe they're open to it, but withdrawal starts. Right. Um, and and that's a problem that we find is is that, you know, we're treating the acute overdose, but we're not giving it. We don't we're not giving a tool to start recovery to get them through that, get them over that hump to where they can be more open to recovery. Right, and that's kind of the whole point of this treatment. So the idea is that, and so, and we have to think kind of chemically with this too, and there's a little bit of a sociological component as well. If you're someone who has overdosed, right, we give Narcan, we reverse all that opiate antagonism or opiate agonism, and now we've put the patient essentially into withdrawal, right? So it's potentially, yeah, that's what, the, right. the goal is to make them breathe again. We shouldn't be giving so much Narcan Absolutely. that we're, absolutely pulling these people out of respiratory depression to the point where now they're up, they're shaking, they're sick, they're vomiting, they're not comfortable, they're probably not open to listening to anybody saying, hey, maybe you need to get some help. That's possible. Dan, those sound an awful lot like withdrawal symptoms. Uh, those are. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what that That's sounds exactly like. That's exactly what that is. So, so at least at a chemical level, to some extent, we've put the patient into withdrawal. And we know that withdrawal is very uncomfortable um, you know, it can be somewhat traumatic for people, too. It's a painful type of process you go through. And we also don't know how long the patient has been on this medication before we give them Narcan. So you have a patient now who's in withdrawal or in the ER, regardless of how long they're in the emergency department. And a lot of times, you know, you can have a patient who signs out AMA afterward as long as they have all their faculties about them and they go on their way. So if you have someone who's been using for a certain amount of time and they've received a drug like Narcan and now they're on their way home, what's the first thing they're going to try and do? Not be sick, right? And it, again, it's they're they're looking to use again. Generally, now, and we're of course we're speaking in broad strokes. We're not going to you know. Well, the, you know, and I know exactly what you're talking so about. But the the term is dope sick. Yes. So the the only cure for that is to get to an opioid. Yeah, to use. Right. So and we we worry about recidivism uh, in EMS. Even though there's a lot of anecdotal stories of people treating the same patient multiple times in a shift, I'm not sure that's actually that it, that actually pans out in the data. 
Um, but should that be the case, that's where buprenorphine actually, I said it right, that's where buprenorphine actually comes into play. So this is a drug, again, it's a, it's a partial agonist uh, for the mu receptors. And the important part about this drug for me is that this has a half-life of 37 hours. That's cool. So we know that this is relevant because we have Narcan that has a half-life between 30 and 90 minutes. Most heroin has a half-life of about six minutes. So we give the Narcan, the heroin wears off, and then we give buprenorphine on the back end. And the idea is that we can have these patients who can actually leave the hospital. Function. Function, not get dope sick. And then maybe we put them in a position where they realize that they can actually hopefully, which is I guess our goal is to have them seek treatment and then have them live past their hospital admission. Absolutely. Um, I think the buprenorphine, I think the heart of it, like you said, is getting long-term treatment. So I can already hear in the distance echoes of screaming medics like, who cares? We're out here to save lives. We don't need to give, forget these junkies. We don't need to help. We're just going to save their lives and bring them to the hospital. I wholeheartedly disagree, obviously, with that thought. Um, I find that decreasing withdrawal symptoms like you said would make them more receptive to getting help and if we got to start treating addiction like the disease it is because just like any other disease if you don't get help for it you're not going to get better if you have cancer it's up to you to seek chemo treatment if you have diabetes it's up to you to go see your doctor so you can be treated for it if you have heart disease to see a cardiologist like you can't be like ah i have this disease feel bad for me and that's it like I, th- I think one of the things we have to do as as clinicians is is look at, you know, these overdose calls. And, yeah, we can, you know, we can sit there and socially, you know, look down on them and say, OK, you know, they're junkies, quote unquote. I don't know what you guys think, but I'm not seeing those people in my overdoses. What I'm seeing are people who started on prescription meds. Uh, often for a lot of legit reasons and now are non-functional because they can't get the prescription meds. They've turned to more potent alternatives because they've developed a tolerance. And those are my overdose patients. A lot of times they're they're not the typical, you know, punk rock junkie living in Alphabet City, (laughs) you know, the old story like... Punk rock junkie, Alphabet City. I don't understand these references. Old Sid Vicious over here coming up from CBGB's <laughs> riding oh that horse. God. No, no, but Dan makes a really good point. And there, I've, I've seen data sets that show that numbers as much as high as 70% of patients typically end up with a prescribed opiate medication, usually for something like back pain. And for a lot of people, it becomes a simple economic decision. So if you're someone who suffers from chronic back pain and you're prescribed an opiate for that pain, there's a fair to good chance that you're going to be on disability, which is going to put you on a fixed income. So if you're prescribed an opiate medication, and typically, you know, the example is always OxyContin, that medication costs X per tablet, let's say $30 per tablet. And if you have an option to choose to pay $30 per tablet or say $6 per heroin fold, and you have the access to it, you're going to, you're going to buy the heroin. Like it's just, again, it's simple economics to some point. So that uh, this is, we're not trying to do this as a a history of opiate addiction um, episode, though we certainly could. There's a lot of interesting information out there about it. But so again, so the whole point of this is we give these patients this treatment and hopefully with a drug with a half life of 37 hours, they can leave the ER and not be sick. And then again, the hope is that we actually get them the treatment that they need, which is going to be to try and get into an outpatient center. And this is obviously going to have to be in a combination with different uh, initiatives that hospitals are going to have to do, which will be you know, someone's going to come in if they choose to to be treated with you know um, with buprenorphine or to go into the hospital. 
it's perfectly appropriate for them. And then the back end is we're going to have to get the hospitals involved. Like, are you interested in seeking outpatient treatment? And if you are, this is these are the you know kind of mechanisms we have in place for that. I've absolutely seen some hospitals that already do that, but I feel that when we reverse and they're in these having these withdrawal symptoms, the last thing I want to talk about is like, do you not want to feel this way? The easiest way is to go get treatment, or the, I should say, the correct way is to go get treatment. The easiest way is just to go get high again. Right. So, some hospitals do offer it. There's often t- I've had experiences where I've gone in. There's already a social worker waiting. They know mm. we're coming with it. Um, that's not always the case, and that really is hospital dependent. Well, and that's part of the advantage of a drug like buprenorphine, where it has that partial mu agonism that you would see in, say, something like heroin. Where and so heroin and morphine are are generally full uh, mu agonists, so they have that full chemical binding that you're looking for. Whereas a drug like Narcan is an antagonist, so it fully blocks the entire drug. So the idea is we give buprenorphine uh, after you give the Narcan, so it would keep binding to those receptors partially, so that you reduce all of those uh, opiate withdrawal symptoms. Now. Again, so the idea is that they don't have that dope sickness that we see after we give Narcan so that when you have that conversation with them in the ER, where like, hey, listen, you know, do you want to seek treatment? They're not in the mindset where they're withdrawing, so they don't really want to talk to anybody. Now, mm-hmm. I can't speak to personal experience. I myself have never been dope sick, but I have been very sick. And I know that the last thing that you want to do when you don't feel well is talk to someone about how you can get better. You just like you'd like to be better. But having like alternative it's not the convers- time to have the discussion. No, exactly. And having alternative conversations isn't really. Listen, the I don't want to talk to somebody about emodium when I'm having bathroom trouble, so I can't even imagine. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> I don't want to hear about Zofran <laughs> when I'm actively vomiting. That's, 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 a, that's a vision. <laughs> it's like it's like when you have the you're flu. Welcome. You're like, have you tried Tamiflu? Like, please just leave me alone. Just <laughs> right. Like, let me so, die in peace. <laughs> you know, I usually find that half Gatorade, half water. Thank <laughs> you. Thanks. It's great. Oh, hot tea. Thank you. It's so good. God bless. So, but that's kind of the idea is that we can give them this medication. Hopefully, and again, the whole point is to treat the patient better. So maybe they can get this medication, and you know they can maybe seek treatment or be treated better afterward. Now, just like any other medication, there are potential side effects that we have to worry about. Um, again, it does have the partial mu agonism that you see in heroin and morphine, um, you know, drugs like fentanyl and like that. So there is a possibility that the patient can suffer from respiratory depression, uh, adrenal insufficiency, hypotension, and further addiction. So the next question we have to ask is, is it possible that we're contributing to the problem by giving them buprenorphine in the field post-treatment for, say, a heroin or a fentanyl overdose? In the same way that we'd be causing a problem by giving fentanyl in the field for pain patients. I don't think there's always a risk with right. anything we give. So I think the benefit outweighs the risks perf- uh, personally. So I'm for this. What about, <clears throat> what about it being more of a controlled risk? What do you mean? Um, we have a patient, you know, and we've all seen this, you know, if you're in your area, this, this happened, this has happened, um, in our area, this is something that's frequent where you have somebody who's been given Narcan for an opioid overdose, you get there, they're alert oriented times three, they don't want to go to the hospital. They don't want any help. They don't want any assistance. Okay. So we release it or we let them sign a refusal because there's no... There may be in your jurisdiction, there may be no legal reason to arrest them or hold them in custody. Right. Now what? So we leave. What are they going to do? Well, I think the prevailing first thing they're going to do is try to go back and score drugs. I, I think. Well, so that's the problem is I think that's the prevailing theory, but I'm not sure that actually pans out in reality. Well, I don't know if it pans out in reality, but that's an uncontrolled environment. 
What buprenorphine is going to give us is the ability to provide a controlled environment. They're not going to be dope sick. They're going to have a period of time where they're going to be fairly functional. They're not going to be high. Yes, I think there is a potential for respiratory depression, but I think at the doses we're giving, it's probably going to be very low, very minimal. Well, and also the thing to consider is if we're in the field and the patient's already received Narcan, giving them buprenorphine is going to take a while to work because we already have Narcan circulating through the system. Right. So the respiratory depression, I'm, I'm not so much worried about the respiratory depression issue because I feel like we already have a drug circulating through the system to stop that. I think the question is going to come up now, and, and we're going to discuss the, the pushback, I think, or that we can pseudo predict is going to come up from this. Um, my only concern is that are we, sup- are we supplementing the addiction by offering this partial agonist or are we creating a whole second problem or is this a, a better solution than what we have available to us right now? I think this is a better solution because just throwing Narcan at the problem clearly isn't working. So why not take the next logical step and start treating these people for the withdrawal symptoms are going to be experiencing? Um, I mean, if you, you keep on going down the slippery slope, but like, then we'll have social workers on the ambulance with us. But I think, all joking aside, this Aren't is the logical. are we already social workers to an extent? To a small extent, I well, think. I mean, yeah. we get paid like them, so. <laughs> wow. Hey, my mom is a social worker. I can speak to I how can, I much can they that. do not make. Um, so I think I think this is the smart next step. And, you know, there was a lot of uproar about naloxone going to police officers being available over the counter. Recently, there was a free naloxone day at uh, participating pharmacies. Mm-hmm. That's a good Band-Aid. But now I think um, buprenorphine is more of like now actually suturing and dressing and cleaning a wound. And then healing is going to take over time with the patient's participation. But... It gives, gives them, them an chance. opportunity to heal. It gives them a chance. They, and they listen, might go back and use. Naloxone's and a, that's yeah, fine. Naloxone's but, a chance to live. Uh, buprenorphine is a chance to get better, in my opinion. That's my assessment of it. Right. And and as paramedics and as clinicians, we ought to be happy that this is, this is kind of becoming a frontline option to start people on the way to recovery. Okay, you might give this 100 times. may not work 99 of them. But one, you give somebody your life back. How many of our treatments are actually, you know, look at, look at cardiac arrest survival. How many times in our careers have we worked cardiac arrests? And how many times have we got to shake the hand of the person walking out of the hospital? We do a lot of things that don't have a lot of statistical upsides. So I actually really like that Does that, that mean we don't do it? And I, I think that, so the, the reason I like that comparison is nationwide, we know that the average cardiac arrest survival rate is about six to eight percent, right? Unless you're unless you're dealing right. with some bananas numbers like Seattle pulling. Out, that, that, that's, a, that's an outlier nationally. Yeah, right. So right. whatever. So six to eight percent, right? So we know that we go into a cardiac arrest and we're like, I'm going to save this life. Like, let's go. And then six to eight percent of the time you do it. When you get into an opiate overdose, like where we're actually saving a life, mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, what's our actual success rate? With that, because it's got to be in, the, and I, I don't have the data in front of me, but it has to be in the 80s and 90s. I want to stop you right there, and I'll let you finish. Okay. But I don't think naloxone is saving a life so much as stopping a death. Um, buprenorphine might right. be saving a life. Okay. All right. All right. I'll, I'll, I, I so semantical. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I see what you're saying. I'm, I, I'm we speaking, need a hot take, and there it is. I'm, I'm speaking. Put on a shirt. I'm speaking absolutely in the acute phase. That was pretty good. If in in the the long-term phase, yeah, absolutely. That's something that's going to be saving the uh, buprenorphine. Is something that's going to be saving a life. Right. I'm just speaking in the acute phase where I have someone who isn't breathing anymore, 
in that they are dying. Of course. I give them naloxone and now they, they turn around. So just in the acute phase, it's saving life. I understand what you're saying with the preventing right. death thing. I mean, yeah, and I, I have my whole semantical arguments about, you know, what yeah. we actually do in the field is saving a life and such. But right. I feel like this is a very good opportunity to say, no, 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 this drug might actually save someone's life by giving it back to them or giving them a chance to reclaim it. Yeah. So I, and I, I don't necessarily disagree with the semantic argument. I, I see where you're coming from. But what I'm using it as a comparison to is we have very low rates of survivability in cardiac arrest, and we're perfectly okay with that. I'm willing to bet, and again, I, I haven't seen the data, but I just anecdotally, I'm sure it's very high, that we, to use your terminology, prevent a death with administration of naloxone, and I'm going to bet that the, those numbers are in the 80s and 90s percent, right? right? So the question is, why don't we view treating an overdose with the same, I guess, romance that we view saving cardiac arrest? A flat-out social stigma. We, we don't think that there, there's a significant population of our colleagues that think that these people did it to themselves. This is something they choose to do. And they can choose to avoid it. And they make this simplistic judgment in their head. And, you know, not for nothing. Why don't you do that for other people? You know, and not for so nothing. We don't go to, and just, just let me go yeah. on this. You know, I don't go to STEMI patients and get on scene and go, oh, this is such crap. You know, why couldn't you have had a salad once in a while? Or, dear God, walking around the street might have helped. Right. You know, we don't do that. We don't look at the COPD or in like, you know, roll our eyes and go, oh, this guy's a piece of garbage. He could have just stopped smoking anytime he wanted. Let's put aside the fact that, you know, we have people who smoke in the profession. Well, and that was going to be my point, where oftentimes it's just like, I don't understand the problem. This this addict did it to themselves while they'll say it like while drinking a beer and smoking a cigarette. There's probably exactly. a long list of medical conditions that we treat where the patient could arguably have done it to themselves. Well, di- diabetes, type two diabetes is a lifestyle disease. Wow, like yeah. that, and that's what it's one of the highest uh, patient populations that we. Okay, see. here's another hot take today. Do it. I'm going to argue that everything we treat. Is pretty much self-inflicted. It is the hottest of takes. This is a hot take. Uh, so name me name me a condition we treat as an AL, as ALS clinicians that doesn't have an element of self-inflicted. Pedestrian struck. Uh, well, he could have been crossing out in a crosswalk. Jaywalking. Jay. Okay. How about this? this? Sudden cardiac gonna, arrest. We, we can do a whole uh, thing on jaywalking. It's not really a crime, but. Okay, Marfans. You want to talk about like something really way out there, but th- those are outliers. Dissecting most of your heart, most of our heart attacks are people who didn't take care of themselves, didn't monitor their triglycerides. Most of our strokes are high blood pressure, risk factors that were avoidable that weren't avoided. COPD, cigarette smoking. Um, so I'll, I'll agree with you that most... Come on. The, the majority of the diseases that we see are long-term. There's an element of self-infliction to it. But I worry about making a statement that like all of them are things that patients did to themselves because I'm I've, not I've, trying to be, I'm yeah, not trying to be I'm not trying to be facetious here or cause a problem. What yeah. I'm what I'm trying to say is this is the only disease mm-hmm. opioid use disorder or addiction disorders. Right. It's the only disease where we look at them and go, "This is your fault." Oh, I, I a thousand percent uh, agree agreed. with you on that. And we could apply Absolutely that agreed. to a lot of things, and we don't do it. And why? Because we have this social stigma that they're weak and they're not as they're not as good as us, and somehow they they don't deserve. Yeah, we this. don't apply it because it's wrong. Never mind. We roll our eyes, or we pat, or we overlook the fact that guess what? The person might maybe sit next to you in the truck. The person who may be sitting you next to you in con ed. The person who may be sitting next to you in clinicals. Guess what? They've got the same disorders. They just hide it better, folks. 
No, absolutely. And we, we've talked about that on this show, both in panels and in interviews. There, and we'll you know, talk about it again. Yeah, and it's going to keep coming up. Uh, yeah, so the right. other thing I think is important to point out, uh, as far as buprenorphine is concerned, is that this is not a new drug. It's, 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 not, it's new to you, but it's not actually a new drug. So this is actually one of the principal components in a drug called Suboxone. Um, so buprenorphine and naloxone are combined to make Suboxone. So mm-hmm. it's actually a drug that you're probably aware of, um, but you just may not have seen packaged this way. So why do we have buprenorphine and naloxone packaged together? Um, this is one of the smarter drug formulations that I think I've seen in a long time. So Suboxone is an oral tablet, mm-hmm. right? Right. Take it, swallow it with water, whatever else. And naloxone doesn't have any bioavailability in the stomach. So you only get the buprenorphine and no effect from the naloxone because it's not actually available when you take it orally. Why it's brilliant is because it has that partial mu agonism that everyone's looking for when they're trying to get high is that if you actually crush up the tablet and mix it with water or whatever else and try to inject it, you're actually injecting naloxone. <laughs> Which is, that's, that's wow. a, that is a brilliant formulation and I love that someone came up with that idea. But the whole pretty point... Pretty sneaky. <laughs> pretty sneaky, sis. <laughs> <laughs> But the whole point of that is that this is, and again, and, and um, buprenorphine is also sold as Buprenex and Belbuca, which is m- one of my favorite drug names. Belbuca. 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 <laughs> um, so it is actually sold on its own as well. But again, this is, I, I don't want people to think that because we are now able to use this, that it's a new drug. It certainly is not. It's the same thing like when, when naloxone became available to BLS providers in a large scale. They're like, oh, it's this new drug. And medics have been given it for 25 years prior. Right. Not a new drug. Its safety profile has been well established. Its efficacy profile has been well established. It's just a very new thing. And so far, New Jersey is the only state in the union that has approved its use. And again, as we're recording this, this was about three or four days ago. For pre-hospital use. For pre-hospital use. For pre-hospital use. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been used in the hospital. And again, because that's, you know, it's who we're talking to. Um, But it's it's been approved in the hospital uh, generally for years. So again, not a new drug. And if you're out there in the social media world, I'm sure it's popped up in conversation or a post or any group you're belonging to. And there is a load of conversation about it. And as I said, there's an article in the EMS world that we're going to link in the show notes to this. So um, I, I think as a group, uh, are we generally in agreement that this oh, absolutely. is a good, I think this is good great. progress? This I think is it's a good thing. Good. I think it's a step in the right direction. Here's where I want to take this conversation next. Why? Now, everyone has to be, the, there has to be a first for everything. Mm-hmm. Yes. Why, why are we in New Jersey the first ones to do this? How come no one else has done this prior? And how prevalent do we think this is going to be as time goes on? Well, easy. We're the best. <laughs> oh, boy. No, no, no. Um, Just saying the devil's at the number one draft. I think it's a perfect know, storm blues, in New Jersey. I think I think in our state, um, we've been hit very hard by the opioid overdose crisis and Absolutely. the opioid yep. addiction crisis. Um, so just, I just think, to dovetail off that real quick, the northeast of the United States has the highest incidence and prevalence of opiate use and overdoses in the United States. Now, isn't Can it you odd back that, that up we're, with statistics? Yeah, it's from the CDC. It's uh, about six point. As of 2015, it was 6.4 per 100,000. Okay, we'll uh, put that in the show notes. Yeah. All right. Well, there's also that little thing, especially here in the state of New Jersey, that we actually are home to many major pharmaceutical companies. So there might be some lobbying going on that's like, yeah, we can push this out. But also in that same vein, this might be, uh, we're talking about a lot of our opioid abusers start off as people on pain medication where it might have been pushed a little bit more. So... So I, that, that's actually, do you think that, are you saying that, do you think that there was a like a drug lobby that got involved to get this drug put out to 
EMS providers? I don't I don't think so because I don't think it's more I don't think it's like a money making thing, yeah. but I just think the availability of it in New Jersey oh, makes okay. it just yeah, so like people, more people are aware of it so they see more it. More aware of it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. So why is there a benefit to putting it out in a state like say New Jersey and not so much like California or Texas or Florida? Um yes, because unlike the, some of those other states, we operate a little differently in our ALS and the way we're hospital driven. That's very true. And, okay. you know, we have a lot more use of online medical control than some places that pretty much operates exclusively off standing orders. Right. Um, and we're also unique that we have a two paramedic provider system, mm. uh, the two tiered response. So you have two people of the same competence level bouncing this idea whether or not they should give this drug. And I think. It's a little safer in this environment, and data collection will be a little easier, and we happen to have a very progressive mindset in the state about pre-hospital medicine, so I think right. it only makes sense for it to start here. And it wouldn't be wrong for it to start in some other places. Like you mentioned, Seattle would be a great place for it to start, but here we're afflicted particularly bad by the opioid crisis, so it, to me, would make the most sense to start here. Well, if you, I mean, look, if you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. Right. Correct. It were, I agree with you on a lot of what you're saying. I mean, I think... This is, like I said, we're the epi- we're one of the epicenters of the opioid crisis. Again, we're a hospital. Generally, ALS in this state is a hospital-based system uh, that gives more direct um, medical direction. And generally, our medical directors are are very very hands-on, uh, as opposed to some other places. May not be your place. May be your place. I'm not. I don't know. I'm not casting any kind of generalities. Um, I think that you know the. The forward thinking and the the medical side of this, um, and also that hospital based focus, kind of makes us a little bit more looking to how do we improve the trajectory of patients through the healthcare system. Um, if we can start buprenorphine early um, and get them into the hospital where now they can be seen by addiction services, maybe they can be referred for outpatient stuff. There's going to have to be a support system here. It's not just, we give them a pill and we're going to kick them loose and they're going to go somewhere. There's going to be some type of, of system in place. That being said, that system is going to probably help the trajectory through the healthcare system. I think if you bring people in on buprenorphine, uh, you'll have less problems with, you know, staff interactions with that withdrawal, drug sick, annoying patient or pissed off patient. Um, I think you're going to see less need for, you know, one-to-one observations because they're not going to be climbing the walls or need to be in a monitor area. Um, I think there's a lot of side benefits that come out from this. And I think this is one of those things, again, like TXA, where we're finding out that the earlier we start buprenorphine, we probably are going to see better improvements. And that's going to have to be researched. I'm just spitballing here. Mm -hmm. Um, But I will say that... um, you know, going off on the show notes and talking about some of the stuff on the internet. Uh, if you know some of you out in the FOMED world know uh, Ruben Strayer, he's an EM doc yep. in New York City, uh, has done a lot uh, with buprenorphine in his shop, and he's written at it, written about it at his uh, site EM Updates. He has a blog. Uh, he's done podcasts on it. Um, he has a lot of information about doing this and starting buprenorphine in the emergency department. And getting these people out to addiction services so that they can start their recovery. Um, he, I'm just looking through his Twitter feed, and one of the first things that popped up was uh, a study from the Journal of Substance Abuse Treatment. And this is in Baltimore City. Um, they're actually initiating treatment outside Baltimore City Jail. And these people leave the facility and, you know, 
before they get into withdrawal, uh, when they get bailed out, they start them on buprenorphine, and that way they don't have to resort to those dangerous alternatives. Right. So there's public health benefits to this. We might see a decrease in you know, opioid use deaths. We might see, or misuse deaths. We might see a reduction in uh, hostility to staff or those incidents where staff get injured or, you know, things like that as a side benefit. Um, you know, we may see a decrease in disease, needle-borne trans- or transmission of disease. You may see a decrease in crime. We don't know this. Right, and it's always impossible you know, to know the downstream effects of anything that you're doing. Right, but looking at it, going forward it seems like the downstream effects would be more positive than negative right well, sure so, and, and if it's more positive then why not just do it right and so so the next thing is you know this is a treatment that we're giving pre-hospitally that's going to have long-term downstream effects and i think one of the pushbacks that tends to occur when we in- initiate those kind of treatments is is it our job to give long-term medications in the field now the first comparison i'll make is if you're giving a steroid like Cyamedrol for a COPD patient, I'm glad you went there. Like you, you've been doing that already. Now, again, this is so this. I I think that this treatment is going to end up being a microcosm of what EMS will become long term, where instead of just acute treatments, we're starting longer term treatments in the field too. So, and I the reason I bring that up is that anytime there's a new medication or new treatment, it always there's always pushback to we never did this before. It's not going to work for X amount of hours. Blah blah. And I'm kind of my response has been like, we already do this for other illnesses. And as we were talking about earlier, like if we're already treating other illnesses, we might as well treat this as an illness and do what we can to fix people. You know, if we have that available to us. Absolutely. So, yeah, Yeah. I I think that there's there's a lot that can be done with this. Um, You know, obviously, as far as opioid treatment is concerned, like we're never we as EMS providers are never going to solve this problem. Right. It's too multidisciplinary. It's too multifaceted. Um, there's, you know, there's just too many variables going on with it, but I do think that this is a very good, important step in the right direction. Um, as I said, since this has been giving, you know, physicians have been prescribing Suboxone for such a long time. I'm surprised, A, I'm surprised that it took so long for it to come to the field, for it to come pre-hospitally. Um, and well, there's, this, a, there's a wrinkle with prescribing buprenorphine. You have to have something called an X waiver right. to allow you to, to prescribe it. Mm-hmm. Is do you want to expand on that, or is there anything that you I, want so to add to it? Because I, there's some ED docs that are that are literally like saying, "Well, I, I can't do that here. I have to get X waiver, and I'm not doing it, and it's a whole thing." I, I'm not as familiar with that as I probably should be, um, but my understanding generally of waivers is that you just have to be approved from your facility to actually uh, prescribe the medication. Um, I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong, because there's a very good chance that I am wrong on that. Um, but it, my my point to that is. This is something I feel like is a, I don't want to say a fairly obvious next step, but I feel like this is something that's been done in the hospital for a long time, and I'm surprised it took this long for anybody in any state to kind of be like, well, what if we did this in the field? I have a, actually a question. How, how is buprenorphine coming? Is it going to be an injectable PO? That's a... I, my under- I feel like it's probably going to be an injectable. Okay. Because if <laughs> it is, is it still going to have that 37-hour half-life? Yeah, because it's oral, the oral, the oral surgery. That's actually a good question. Um, because if we're re- yeah. if we're, we're doing not doing it, an injectable, if we're this doing is gonna it, be oral. Oh, it's going to be oral. oral so you know, yeah. all right. Because so, I'm saying, if we're doing our job right, we're only reversing respiratory depression, where the patient is adequately breathing. We right. obviously can't give a PO medication to an unresponsive patient. Well, not with that attitude. Well, <laughs> you don't know me. 
So, okay. So the X waiver process is to prescribe or dispense buprenorphine. They must qualify for a physician waiver, which includes completing eight hours of required training and applying. Okay. It, it's an eight hour training day, man. Like, All right. uh, yeah, do it. I don't know. That's a, so we talked about this in our refresher episode that and went it's out, just, came and out the, the reason why, like it's, it's an eight hour program. And the reason why you need it is because these specially approved medications are generally only given in an opioid treatment program, right. like a methadone clinic or something like that. And, the yeah. X waivering allows a physician to prescribe those medications right. outside of that setting. And that makes sense because right, you're, you're, you're giving a medication that can cause respiratory depression. You have the you have to have the same education if you're giving opiates. I got it. Um, but yeah, I, I think that this is something that has the potential to cause a lot of difference. I think it can you know improve patient care. Um, as a practitioner, I'd be excited about it. Uh, my my worry uh, because again in in this state it's going to be a may carry drug. Be, you know, there's no and again there is no real reason to make it a must carry drug. So I understand why it's a may carry drug. Um, my only worry is that it's not going to be administered enough and it's going to change the the may carry status for a lot of places where they just they don't carry it anymore because it's not financially viable right so that's that's really my uh my kind of concern on it. otherwise i think it's a it's a pretty good program i'm excited about it um i'm really interested to see what kind of data comes out with it um obviously it's something you know this is going to be a, a five-year oh this has got to be a study need. drug yeah we're going to need um, a lot of data to get this, uh, but we have a lot of opioid use. So I can't wait. <laughs> no, I love you know. It's I, just, I just I want the data now. Uh, yeah, well, and that's the thing. You know, we we know what the potential is going to be, but we don't necessarily know, you know, what the the end result total is going to be. So, but I think it's an exciting thing. Um, I I mean I'd be interested to hear what the fan base has to say. I know uh, the yeah, majority I, of our fan base is uh you know in the Northeast United States. Um, and I'm also interested to hear what people around the country have to say. I got to admit, I, I've been talking it up that, you know, in, in our place and, uh, I'm kind of surprised. I was, there was people like, what are we doing this for? Like, what's this all about? Like, well, and that was kind of my there, point there's going to be like, pushback. Yeah. I think it's yeah. going to be a slow process. Well, and that was the thing it's, it's with any new drug, you know, there's always going to be the same thing when we, you know, we were talking about TXA, um, when BLS got Narcan. And that's why I say, I'm interested to see how many times it's administered. And how effective it actually is, because this is something where the variable is going to be patients aren't getting it, not because they aren't eligible for it, but because the provider decided that there wasn't enough time to give it. And that's, you know, that's always kind of a hang up we run into. And that's why I'm interested to hear what people across the country think, because if you're in a project where you typically have a 45 minute transport time with someone who's overdosed, I want to know what you think about that, because you're you're starting to get to a point where the naloxone you gave might actually be wearing off. Right. Mm. You know, so I'm interested to see how that goes. But let us know what you guys think. Uh, we're at overrunproductions at gmail.com. You can find our podcasts anywhere you get all your podcasts. Alexa, play the overrun. Anywhere. I hope that it actually works for somebody one of these days. I want to I want to hear I want to see someone tweet at us at overrun EMS. That, what that, if that, they were listening that, on their Alexa already? Then and then it like, restarts the show. No, so don't d- don't divide by zero. <laughs> uh, we're also on Instagram and Facebook at overrun productions. Um, let us know what you think. This is a brand new thing. Uh, as I said, this is going to be an EMS world. Um, and yeah, let us know what you guys think. And uh, do you think this is a good idea, bad idea, or how well it's going to work? So for the overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. And I'm Kevin Mazza. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.